G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to continue the series exploring the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme, the vast hydroelectric and irrigation project that began in 1949 and was under construction for about 25 years across the Snowy Mountains. If you are just new to the Australian Histories podcast, you might like to start this snowy hydro story back at the first episode in this series. That's episode 38, before making your way back here. Last episode, we talked about the start of the large-scale construction across the huge scheme, as well as reflecting on the old and new townships. Today, we'll turn our attention to the workers' arrangements. At the peak of construction, over 1959 and 60, there were about 7,300 people employed on the project, so that's a lot of people to keep fed and watered and entertained. And it was hard and sometimes dangerous work, so we'll consider some of the human costs on the project too. As I have done each episode for this series, I will again be relying heavily on the work of Siobhan McHugh and her very informative book, The Snowy, A History. The oral histories she gathered from those working on the scheme are so valuable, and I'll quote directly from a number she's included in the book. As always, details about that book and the other references used can be found in the reference list for this episode, posted at the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. Don't forget that I spell this histories with an I-E-S. And I will have another podcast recommendation for you at the end of today's story too. But before we get stuck in, I wanted to thank Robin M. and Ian H. for sending through contributions in the last month. I've just purchased a second-hand book for an upcoming episode, Post Snowy, so I'm grateful for the support. Thanks, as always, to my ongoing patrons too, who subscribe through the Patreon platform with a regular contribution. It's such a great help. Thank you. A quick thanks to Penguin Random House Australia, who have sent me a copy of Moonlight, the tragic story of Captain Moonlight and the bloody end of the bushrangers by Gary Linnell. It looks fascinating, and another series on bushrangers is on the radar in the future, so that could prove very helpful. One final thing to share with you this month was an email I received from listener Jonathan. Jonathan is a long-distance runner, and he told me he listens to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts as he does his training runs. He deliberately listens only on the runs, so that getting back to the next chapter or episode of something he enjoys actually serves as a bit of extra motivation to get out there on the tracks. (laughs) I was pleased to hear that the Australian Histories podcast was amongst those he enjoys. Also surprising to hear was that Jonathan lives in Finland. About 88% of our podcast listening community is Australian, with the next biggest segments listening from the US or the UK but the remainder is made up of listeners from all over the world, from Mexico to UAE, Singapore to the Netherlands. It's wonderful to see. As I told Jonathan, I always assumed that they would mostly be Australian expats listening from those far-off lands, but I'm delighted to hear that many of the Australian stories I retell are of interest to folks from all over the world, those with an interest in learning about Oz. And a quick shout-out here too to long-time listener and Patreon supporter, Michelle G. from the US, and to supporter Wendy K. from Mexico. I particularly wanted to tell you about Jonathan getting in touch, though, because you cannot believe how much trouble he went to. On one of his 30k runs, after work, 
and just thinking about that has made me tired. He took an interesting route through his town and around the lovely Finnish outskirts, and he took photos of interesting places and scenes. He then recorded his own little audio to send me, describing the photos, interesting historical or personal reflections on his town, and on Finland in general, including some winter sports sites, like the massive ski jumps used for competition and training there, and so many other things. It was fascinating. A little audio-visual tour of Jonathan's hometown. It's just what was needed in the middle of the current lockdown in my hometown. So thanks for all the effort you went to, Jonathan. And I'm so delighted that you're enjoying the show and hearing a little about Australia's backstories. Good luck with the running. Okay, on with the show and back to the snowy. From Jindabyne Tunnel and Round Island Bend, we boys go to Kuma, our money to spend. And we'll buy yours one beer there if you happen to see. Four Italians, three Germans, two Yugoslavs and me. Now we may not be diggers, but we'll have you know, we're digging the tunnels up here in the snow. It's dark in that tunnel and the work she is rough By the time it hits payday we all have enough So we rush into Kuma to have us one spree Four miners, three fitters, two chippies and me Come in Mikhailovich We pull up in Sharp Street by the Alpine Hotel If you've been to Kuma you know this place well <laughs> And before we get inside our ordering for Venus, three schnapses, two slivervich, one stout. Sing up, it is a beat. Well, I guess we got the noisy, don't know harm did we mean. Singing your soul, Mio and Lily Marlene. Some Aussies went to crooker, cause they didn't agree. With four singing, three marching, two dancing and me. Now we may not be diggers, but we'll have you know. We're digging your tunnels up here in the snow. We left the previous episode with various construction works underway right across the vast project site. Many townships housed the workers and families and there were numerous workers' barracks housing the single men. We're going to look today a little more at the working conditions of the labourers building the mighty snowy structures. As I mentioned a moment ago, at the peak of construction over 1959-60, there were 7,300 people employed across the project, and by then, the single men were generally housed in barrack-style accommodation, with 20 single rooms in each building, separate ablution blocks, and a mess for food and recreation. Food provided would generally be the idealised Aussie fare, steak and three veg at dinner, or a meaty stew, and they were generally offered a big cooked breakfast with a hot meal or sandwich selections for lunch, depending on their work and site arrangements. Food quality in the early days could be a bit hit and miss, but by the heavy construction years, after the Americans had come in and set the standard, the food provided was usually very good. The Europeans probably missed the variety and the flavourful small goods, spice dishes and fancy cheeses they would have remembered, but those gradually became available in the camps, the nostalgic workers sometimes bringing them in. For some of their Australian colleagues, this may have been their first exposure to such fare on the snowy. It took the rest of Australia a while to appreciate and embrace these new tastes, but we are so much the richer for it. <laughs> she says as she nibbles on a slice of Jarlsberg cheese. A few years in, and some camps and towns would also gain a wet mess, where beer would be sold. 
McHugh advised that the original intention was for the project accommodation to be dry. There was not going to be any grog available at the camps. But, as will happen when you've got lots of folks looking to relax or blow off steam, quote, it was found that a lot of sly grogging was going on with hard grog and there was a lot of lost time due to alcohol sickness. So the authority brought in beer-only canteens, open outside standard working hours, and the lost time from then on was nil, unquote. I imagine the volume you'd have to consume in beer in some ways negates the possibility of alcohol poisoning in one sitting, so it was a very clever move. I mean, the dedicated could certainly write themselves off, but it would not be as detrimental as consuming copious amounts of spirits on a bender. Australian beer may have been an acquired taste for many of the migrants, but it served the purpose for recreation and social lubrication after hours. McHugh records that in Cabramurra, 86,400 middies were consumed most weeks. For those outside of New South Wales, a midi is 285 milliliter, or 10 fluid ounces, a half pint glass. So that's 86,500 half pints in a week at one site. Along with the possibility for workers to earn a spectacular income, Another consideration for the management, insisting on a six-day working week, was to reduce the binge drinking opportunities for the largely isolated all-male workers. If you had to pull up the following day for a tough shift, you'd be less likely to write yourself off on a work night. Well, in theory anyway. Saturday nights must have been epic though. (laughs) So big drinking did occur, and sometimes they experienced the kind of trouble that can accompany that. One man told McHugh, quote, If you had a fight in the bar, it wasn't unusual to have five or six hundred glasses smashed, and maybe half a dozen chairs. At night, you'd set out the clean glasses eight to ten deep on the counter. A fella had run his arm along. Bang! Unquote. If you did misbehave, though, you could be barred from the wet mess, and that might be quite a deprivation if all of your mates were spending the evening there. McHugh recounted the story of one feisty bloke who pushed his luck once too often and was banned for fighting. But he got an unexpected reprieve. Quote, One time the wet canteen was packed and all of a sudden it was cleared in two minutes flat. There was a bloody great brown snake sliding around. The barman was standing on the counter screaming, Will some bastard kill it? Then Billy, who'd been barred earlier for fighting, appeared. He said, If you're going to let me in for a few beers, I'll get rid of it. So he picked it up and put it in his bag and told the barman, I'm keeping it in here in case you change your mind, unquote. <laughs> you have to wonder if he sent the snake into the bar in the first place, don't you? <laughs> the wet mess has evolved over the years, like lots on the snowy, but for the older men it must have been just like the boozers in the army. Gambling was also a big pastime in the camps. The Cooma police worked to quietly regulate the extremes, drawing a pragmatic line through what they would ignore and what they would shut down. Those running any gaming had also to be working at the scheme. They wanted to stop any outsiders coming in to set up and fleece the men. In the camps, those in charge would only turn their heads away and allow large-scale gaming on pay nights, and they strongly encouraged the men to reserve the amount they should have been sending home so that they didn't risk it all. This kind of self-policing meant that there was relatively little trouble, and many camps also wisely stopped any games by midnight, so the men would all show up at work the next morning. But of course, (laughs) there were breakouts. One man recalling a game that ran for four days following a payday, the punters paying someone else to turn up and clock on for their shift. 
And there were a few men known as the gambling kings, making a good deal extra out of professionalising the games in their favour. But overall, this system operated pretty smoothly to allow just enough freedom that the men would stay on site, but not so much as to sour the working environment. McHugh reported that about once a year, the Sydney Vice Squad, bypassing the local police arrangements, would arrive and make some arrests. But the more discreet local rules resumed in time, once moderation reigned. McHugh was told there were some very big losses and big wins. One bloke recalled, quote, There's people out there who made £2,000 a night. It was about 50-50, the people that only saved, and others who just couldn't keep the money money burnt holes in their pockets. They'd go to Sydney, drink it, gamble it, get a kick out of it and never think of it again. In King's Cross, the £10 note was known as the Snowy River Pound Note, unquote. But as the workers' population increased, Cooma developed as a minor rival destination to the notorious King's Cross in Sydney. The Snowy Scheme changed the towns, even if they were not physically relocated, like Adam Inaby and Jindabyne. In the 1940s, Cooma was not much more than a country town servicing the pastoralists and homesteads in the area. But with the coming of the Snowy Project, its population grew from around 200 to 10,000 in just a few years as construction began. And these were mainly city folk coming in. It was home to lots of authority and government workers and a good number of professionals, many bringing their families too. But it also attracted the workers looking for some R&R, rest and relaxation. Large numbers of labourers came into Cooma for refreshment, many of whom were the new Australians, whose presence would sometimes puzzle and annoy the old locals. There was a level of suspicion and resentment amongst the old Anglo-Australian brigade, but the world was changing, and even the old country towns had to move with the times. With the increase in population and the large, well-heeled male constituency, pretty soon Cooma opened up nightclubs, complete with topless dancers and 24-hour licences, which was then pretty rare in Australia. The joint was jumping from the mid-50s to the mid-60s during the peak of construction. On sheer numbers alone, the whole snowy precinct was a very male working environment, though some independent women did come to the snowy for work opportunities. Others came to the area as wives of the workers. Getting back to the construction itself, the scheme's senior engineer, Ivor Pinkerton, estimated that a few thousand engineers would have worked with the authority in its 25-year construction timetable. But in a frustrating reflection of its time, only two of these engineers were women. One was a Hungarian called Hilde Botke, and the other was Deirdre Vance, the first female graduate engineer from Queensland. McHugh recorded Vance reflecting on her recruitment. While at university, the scheme took three engineering interns from her year, and she said there was no comment about the fact that she was a woman. Quote, but on arrival, she found out why. <laughs> I'm not sure they knew I was a woman, she recalled. No accommodation had been reserved for her in the female barracks, and the public relations officer who greeted the trio was obviously surprised to see her. Deirdre assumed her application had been processed by a European who had not encountered her name before and automatically anticipated a man, unquote. <laughs> She returned to work on the Snowy again after graduating. Now there's something for you to reflect on. Clearly she was entirely competent and indeed went on to hone her engineering skills on the scheme, along with all the other young male engineers there. But if her girl's name had been more obvious, would she even have been given the chance to prove herself? 
She said she did feel, despite being massively outnumbered by the male workforce on the Snowy, that they were probably more open-minded about women in the workforce than most Australian workplaces at that time. Quote, I think it was because of the new Australians. The attitudes didn't come from them, but just that there were so many of them there meant that the Australians couldn't stick to the old parochial ways. Unquote. She might be right, but if any of the appallingly sexist things that McHugh found in the staff newsletters and magazines were anything to go by, their attitudes were still pretty primitive in my view. Still, maybe the focus on the engineering and the cutting-edge aspects made that part of the authority more modern in their thinking. Many getting involved were young, maybe forward thinkers, and it was such an interesting project for anyone keen to work on, that if you had the skills you were welcomed. Anyway, that's how it was. Though a healthy morale was actively fostered right across the scheme, there were those workers who were unhappy. Some had signed up only out of necessity, rather than any free choice. Over the 25-year project, there were a few suicides and psychotic breakdowns reported amongst the scheme workers. Conjecture implied that for the migrants, the cause might have been attributed to their war experiences. But ordinary loneliness and homesickness must have taken its toll on the men, far from home. Depression and instability could affect the Australian workers too, of course. There were those men who came to the remote work on the snowy specifically to leave their old lives behind. Some were ex-army or ex-prisoners of war, and some who may have already been somewhat institutionalised. The camp life on the snowy would reinforce that. But this doesn't necessarily equate with unhappiness. For some, it would have been comforting. It was at least a chosen life for most of the locals. Some of the Australians might have been the type very keen to get ahead, who would do what it took to earn the big money that might give them a head start post-snowy. Or they might have been men who didn't care to be in town or the cities anyway, and liked the raw, blokey working environment, the good money just a welcome supplement. But in an unusual twist, with such a large migrant workforce in place, it seemed that the Australians were often more likely to be the outsiders, the foreigners in these camps. Across the nationalities, there was a bit of, oh, well, sort of a labour segregation in the work undertaken. McHugh noted many of the Italians drifted to the masonry-type work, the tunnelling, concreting and building of retaining walls. Those from the Baltic states often worked as miners or tunnellers, or as semi-skilled tradesmen. Hydrography often required lots of cross-country skiing skills, and many Czechs were working in that area. The Germans, perhaps more carefully vetted and selected than the others, often had trades, and they worked as carpenters, electricians and mechanics. New Zealanders and South Africans seemed well represented amongst the surveyors, and the Irish worked as plant operators and in construction. The Spanish and the Italians again gravitated towards the high wire work on the transmission towers. Now that's impressive. What on earth in their backgrounds would have given them a taste for that? Those imposing towers are massive, and they snake across the steep terrain, very high, often perched on precipitous mountainsides. These are all generalisations here, of course, but it's interesting that such noticeable patterns emerged. No doubt speaking the same language as your workmates would have been attractive, so language groups might have naturally gravitated towards each other, in the work groups perhaps. But there were people of many different backgrounds working right across all the areas, and all mucking in together. There was enough familiarity that various nationalities generally didn't feel isolated, but also a good mix, and most shook off the old tribal animosities, allowing harmonious work on the focused projects. 
In the old stereotype, the Germans were considered efficient but with little sense of humour. And they had been recruited early, so they often held senior or supervisory positions. McHugh wrote that, unless they were particularly diplomatic, their methods could easily rankle the other Europeans. And one Czechoslovakian worker recounted a run-in that he'd had with his German colleague, saying, quote, He'd say, you and you and you, you do this. And I said, hold on, this isn't Germany now. This is free Australia, unquote. Fortunately, the message was understood, and they became firm friends and worked well together. But it was important that each put the old ways aside and not inflame prejudices to operate in a more equal and egalitarian way. The Germans, in immediate post-war Australia, had a particular attitude to endure. One German migrant told McHugh that at first there was the suspicion that all Germans must have been Nazis, but within just a few years the Australians no longer held such antipathy. Our direct experiences in the war may have helped the Germans there. No doubt if Japanese had been amongst the migrants, they might not have been given the benefit of the doubt quite so soon. But the Germans were not always sensitive to the potential aggravation they might attract. McHugh recounted one funny episode during an interview she did on the ABC show Conversations, and I'll put a link to that in the reference list, of course. She spoke about the Europeans not being fans of the Australian food, and they thought they might improve their diet by hunting on their days off. The Italians apparently had their eyes on the rabbits and ducks, though one tried cooking a magpie with rather unsatisfactory results. But the Germans, who'd arrived in a rather large group in 1951, also thought to try their luck hunting in the bush. She recounts the story of a big group heading into Cooma after their first payday to try and buy the necessary guns. But the Cooma police were alerted to their highly suspicious behaviour. Quote, the Germans were arming, unquote. <laughs> and there was quite the kerfuffle in town. Right across the snowy, it was a complicated and difficult environment for the workers. Heavy equipment needed to be moved around the steep and newly cut tracks, some needing to be completely disassembled and carted to site in pieces before reassembly, and the seasonal changes brought their own additional challenges. For example, the water required for the drilling had to be carted or pumped from nearby creeks, but in summer these often disappeared underground or stopped flowing altogether. In winter, they would first need to dig through the ice and snow to reach the water, or to set up a heating system so that it wouldn't immediately freeze when applied to the drill. And it was physically demanding. Early on, to start work at Gathiga, the drillers had to walk in five kilometres each day, carrying 18 litres of fuel and the three-metre-long 20-kilogram drilling rods. They earned their good money even before they started work. While there was a good turnover of casual workers on the scheme over the many years that it ran, there was also a good number of men who stayed on right through the project, wedded to the scheme in a sense. McHugh heard of men who intended to head into town to find a wife to consolidate their new lives, but who never quite got away from the work long enough to do so. And many continued living in the area after they retired, or when the project wrapped up, as did the Major, whom we mentioned in earlier episodes, McHugh recorded a Russian displaced person arriving in 1950, who stayed on, surveying in what must at first have been very unfamiliar Australian bush, for the 23 years that surveying was undertaken. Quote, I would say I lived the first seven years straight in a tent. Mostly it was three-man camps, two chainmen and myself. We did our own cooking, tin stuff, potatoes, bully beef, 
cooked enough for four days in a cast-iron pot and put it in wet sand in the creek. It was very primitive and very hard, but our boss was Major Clues. He didn't mind the primitive conditions, so neither did we. We worked mostly ten to twelve-hour days, twelve days straight, and then two days off. We had to get used to the mountains as well, because we mostly came from northern and eastern Europe, where the country was flat. In those mountains, they say you need one long and one short leg, which is very true, unquote. <laughs> but the isolation and the rugged terrain could be hazardous at times. The workers were supposed to travel at least in pairs for safety, but that directive was not always followed. Fortunately, there were not too many dangerous incidents resulting. After a couple of near misses, though, they were expected to carry radios at least, and on high-fire danger days, they were expected to check in every two hours. Though how one might get out in a hurry from some of those remote areas is a mystery, even if you knew a fire was coming your way. The men just continued to work in the high-temperature days anyway. You just had to power through the Australian heat, apparently. Back in 1939, there had been major fires across the southeast, which killed 70 people. So some of the camps created makeshift fire refuges, often just covered trenches cut into the ground as some sort of precaution. The camps had first aid kits, but if there was an injury that required medical attention in a remote camp, they might radio ahead and the injured person had to walk or be carried out until they could meet a vehicle track and be transported by jeep, probably to Cooma Hospital. So it might not be a quick response. But the safety of the work undertaken across the snowy was an ongoing theme. Clearly it was hazardous work by nature, but the main concern seemed to be the speed being demanded of the workers to bring the projects in, on or before time. The Yukonbin Tumut Tunnel, the longest on the scheme at 22 kilometres, was completed four months ahead of schedule in June of 1959. McGee noted that 1957 and 1959 were in fact drought years, giving the builders more good weather days, which would have contributed to their early completion, as it did for a number of the other construction sites. But speed was always of the essence on these projects, and for the tunnels the accident rate had been high, the cost actually described as a man a mile. And sadly for the tunnelling projects worldwide, this was not unusual. Actually, McHugh contrasts the snowy with other projects going on at the time around the world, and this awful tally was at least better than most. St Bernard had a fatality rate of three deaths per mile, Mont Blanc 1.4. It's a pretty awful measure, isn't it, hiding the actual horror and grief involved for each incident, but at least the snowy tunnel rate was lower, at 0.6 fatalities per mile overall. Still, there were lots of miles of tunnels, so this was a devastating outcome, whichever way you look at it. And there would have been numerous severe injuries too. Looking a little more closely at the worksite fatalities, particularly in the early phases of the project, the investigations did seem to indicate these numbers could have been substantially reduced. McHugh suggests, quote, Safety was definitely of concern in some quarters, particularly after 1959 but it is equally certain that unsafe practices went on and that men died needlessly as a result. However good the fatality rate was, it could have been better." Unquote. In Robinson's Occupational Health and Safety Review of the Snowy, published in 2000, he looked at how OHS was managed during the construction of the scheme and considered how loss of life and serious injury might have been mitigated. 
He looked at the impact of available technology, prevailing work practices and attitudes of the management and workers, as well as cultural factors, and the lessons learned or not as the projects progressed. Like McHugh, his conclusion was that Hudson, as the authority's CEO, had a strong commitment to Ock Health and Safety that was probably over and above what would normally be expected in similar projects at that time. Indeed, exceptional even for today, in Robinson's opinion. However, he also suggested that while his, quote, intense interest in OHS made him extremely sensitive to the incidence of fatalities and serious injuries on the project, his loyalty and devotion to the fulfilment of the project's engineering objectives tended to blind him to all too apparent deficiencies, unquote, and he was slow to insist on the potential improvements required. The coroner's reports, labelling most deaths as accidents, didn't help either in the push to identify the shortcomings, and the necessary systematic improvements were not identified early enough or acted on quickly enough, in a way we would expect today. In Hudson's post-Snowy life, his OHS interest continued, and he lobbied strongly for safety education to be an integrated part of every civil engineering course. He became a leading figure in Australian industrial safety and was involved with the National Safety Council. So I think that is a small consolation, that lessons learned, though perhaps learnt more slowly than desired, did help improve conditions as the project progressed, as well as into the future construction environments. Robinson reflected on the agreements and culture on the Snowy, confirming that safety was important to the employing authorities, but that there was a question as to whether their practices matched their theory and whether the theory itself was adequate in controlling the hazardous environment on sites. He noted that the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority, rather than the contractors, were responsible for 20 of the 121 deaths. But Robinson reminds us that direct comparisons between contractors, sites and even phases of the project can't simply be read as an indicator of unsafe practices unique to a particular company. It's too simple to imply that a certain contractors may have been more dangerous than others on the numbers alone though there was some correlation to be derived from the high number of incidents on the sites where speed was demanded. But variables, such as the particular work each site and contractor was undertaking, consideration of specific difficulties related to their activities, such as tunnelling below ground or above, the geology and stability of individual sites, the lengths and depths associated, were all important too. Even the seasonal and environmental conditions differing across the project sites and times were important considerations. So simply looking at the numbers does not provide enough nuance. Some sites were inherently more risky than others. Some periods, there were many more workers on site and so the risk higher through sheer numbers. On the other hand, there were work practices identified with some contractors that clearly could increase risk. And there were other obvious risk factors that should have been acted on earlier. Of the 121 fatalities officially recorded against the 25-year project, Robinson divided them into 12 categories. The category with the highest death rate, at 26 men lost, was plant operation. That was, the men driving or operating the large plant, such as bulldozers, haulage trucks, cranes, graders and the like, with the most dangerous of all, a vehicle known as the Tornipal. The Tornipal, described as a lightweight earth mover, was first produced in the late 1930s and early 40s, and Robinson describes these particularly difficult vehicles as, quote, equipment with major design problems. 
notoriously known as widow makers, they had an unreliable switch steering mechanism which required maximum revs in order to operate effectively. Unquote. Aside from just being awkward and difficult to manoeuvre, steering and braking could be lost if the switch mechanism failed, as it did regularly, and they were known to become uncontrollable, several careering over steep embankments. A former Tornapool operator described the atmosphere of the scheme as, quote, physically similar to being on a war footing. On the job, the Snowy was very much a peacetime version of imminent danger and the will to survive, unquote. Replacing these dangerous vehicles with more reliable and better designed plant would obviously have reduced the risk. But post-war, equipment and plant was hard to come by. Several of these plant deaths occurred under the Kaiser Walsh Perini Raymond Group on the Adaminibi Dam Works. Kaiser also insisted on the work proceeding at great speed to try and claw back the blown-out construction schedule they'd inherited from the Department of Public Works. McHugh records workers saying that they were constantly pushed, quote, they fired them if they went too slow, unquote. It seems, on the outdated equipment they had on that site, such speed was especially hazardous. The simple addition of roofs and roll cages to these vehicles would have greatly reduced loss and injury, but at some unwelcome cost for the contractors too, I assume. Still, deaths and injuries were costly too, but this took a little while for them to figure out, apparently. Fourteen men died from rockfall, being those struck by falling rock or blast debris, usually within the tunnels. Thirteen were killed in tunnel locomotive-related accidents. Again, these are the type of accidents that should have been avoidable, certainly after the first incident, when the danger of operating these vehicles in close quarters in the same dingy cramped space should have been anticipated. Control measures, such as more space between the vehicle track and walking space in the tunnel, installation of speed governors on the engines, improving lighting, alarms and warning devices, and of course better training and procedures would all have helped. One inquest indicated that the men coupling the cars all knew of the inherent risk when operating in haste before the cars had come to a complete halt, but in at least one instance a minor miscalculation had led to the grisly death of one of their colleagues. But even introducing strictly enforced rules, insisting the men move to the wall and remain still as the vehicles moved by, would have helped. Next highest at 11 deaths were those labelled road accidents. These were only counted in the Snowy official tally if the victims were in a company vehicle and on their way to or from a work site. Many others died on the roads outside of working hours in the course of going about their daily lives, but were not counted as workplace deaths or recorded in the memorials to those lives lost on the Snowy. One local police officer remembered 17 fatalities on one stretch of road over a single year. People were fearful of the steep drop-off on the edges and travelled towards the centre of the roads, bringing its own danger. Road accidents were frequent on the poor roads and sometimes icy conditions, and with the project spread out over the mountains, authority staff travelled a combined total of 8 million kilometres a year at its peak. As I may have mentioned in an earlier episode, I think, one interesting thing to come out of those fatalities was that seatbelt use was made mandatory throughout the scheme sites in 1960. That's many years before the rest of the public got that life-saving innovation. The Snowy was the first organisation in Australia to introduce such safety measures, and fatalities dropped immediately. Such a minor intervention was not just a lifesaver for the victim and the blessing for his family, but for all else who may have been impacted by the accident. 
Between the large plant vehicle and the more conventional vehicle accidents, the most dangerous aspects of the scheme, certainly in the early days, was the construction and the use of the tracks and roads in the rugged terrain. Roads could be steep and narrow, and therefore often slippery and precarious. The vehicles of the day, many four- or six-wheel drive or tracked, were still pretty primitive, not easy to drive or manoeuvre. Some had no clutch and had to be ground through the gears, and the brakes were often unreliable. Steep drop-offs at the edge and regular snow and water damage might be an added hazard, developing between one trip and another. Access tracks remained minimal until the plans were fixed and major construction was flagged. If the roads were identified as being permanent and required for heavy machinery operation, only then were they upgraded. Another 11 men lost their lives due to falling objects, such as pipes or girders, for example. Again, Robinson noted that introducing some kind of protective shields above may have reduced the risks and avoided some of these losses. Ten were killed as a result of explosives. The risk here was both from the inherent danger of the work and from the regular failure to adhere closely to the safe haven rules. Premature or misfired explosives could add to the already dangerous process. Explosives always required exceptional care, and each drill hole was to be washed out carefully and cleared of any lingering volatile to reduce the possibility that the next man would drill into some unexploded charge. But the temptation for some was to use any previous holes again to give them a head start and speed up the process. So very risky. On occasion, an unexploded charge may be dislodged amongst the debris on the ground, so even the use of jackhammers on the floor of the tunnels in a blasted area might be deadly. And there was natural risk in the environment too. A thunderstorm bringing lightning nearby could set off charges underground. One of the early deaths was caused by a thunderbolt travelling 100 metres through the earth, that's about 330 feet, conducting electricity through the damp ground and setting off three of the 83 charged drill holes. These mountains and high plains are well known for sudden electrical storms, and the foreman did watch out for such risks. In this case, he'd just heard the thunderstorm come into the area and he ran into the tunnel to stop the men working at the face, as was the Ock Health and Safety procedure, but it was too late. So while routines were in place to reduce the risk, perhaps it could never fully be removed in that era with the tools and the explosives they had available at the time. One highly avoidable situation, though, was the flouting of the safety practice. Robinson records details from a 1958 coroner's report into two deaths, noting, quote, The Department of Labor had stipulated that the firing switch, or safe haven, must be 750 feet from the face, and that all employees must be stationed behind the switch at the time of blasting. On this occasion, the two victims, on the apparent advice of their shift boss, was found dead at a distance of 572 feet from the blasting face. The shift boss, in part, justified his failure to ensure that all men were 750 feet away, by referring to the presence of an American supervisor who endorsed 550 feet as a safe distance. Kaiser Walsh Perini Raymond were notorious for pushing for a consistently fast working pace. The authority was happy to have the work completed at speed, but not to have the local safety rules ignored. In some ways, though, it couldn't be achieved one without the other. Something had to give if the fatality and injury numbers were to reduce, and the approved procedures must be adhered to. Seven men were killed due to mechanical failure or unsafe proximity to machines. 
In recounting one close encounter with dangerous equipment, a worker told McHugh, quote, One bloke had an accident on Blowering Dam. He was on top of the platform as the drill rods were spinning fast, and he went to walk across. The ankle of his overalls got caught and started to spin with the rods. Luckily, the material wasn't strong, and the overalls were ripped right off him. He was left standing there in his underpants. <laughs> he got a terrible shock, but there wasn't a scratch on him, unquote. Well, that was a lucky escape then, having only his clothes torn off when he got too close to a spinning gear. It could so easily have been a great deal worse. Barriers around equipment may have helped reduce these numbers further, but on occasion the fatalities were due to faulty or inappropriate equipment, sometimes unanticipated until after the failure. Four young Italian men were killed in 1958 when the cogs of a gear operating their lift platform failed, allowing the lift to plummet down the deep shaft. The investigating engineers reported to the coroner that there was metal fatigue and an unsatisfactory welding repair evident on the cog and equipment, but they noted that that particular metal, a cast iron, should never have been used as a component in such a winch anyway, and this perhaps may have been an unknown design flaw at the time. Possibly unforeseeable then, but the failure of the lift to include a secondary braking mechanism certainly points to inferior workplace equipment. Certainly everyone should be afforded the safety of a backup, fail-safe mechanism. We would certainly expect it ourselves, on vehicles such as lifts. Seven pedestrians were killed by the large plant on sites. These were mostly spotters, whose job was to guide the machinery safely around the site. Again, you have to wonder if that could have been avoided by the kind of alarms insisted on today, like those irritating but highly effective reversing signals on vehicles. And now, the ubiquitous high-vis clothing would have given the vehicle drivers on the snowy sites a fighting chance of seeing the men on the ground, at least. Seven men died from falls from height. Some of the photos on the scaffolds used in those massive dam walls were horrifying for me to see, <laughs> when you realise human beings were perching up there day in, day out, as heavy machinery operated all around them. Again, Robinson pondered the effectiveness of harnesses or higher-quality guard railings had they been available. McGee, in his recollections, described a near-miss he had encountered while working above a 12,000-foot vertical pressure shaft for the Tumut Works. Ten men were being lifted down the shaft when the guide rails failed and their platform jammed and then began to tilt over while the cables above uncoiled on top of them. The men were hanging there, part way down at risk of plummeting to the base. Pretty quickly the workers around began to stabilise the platform and began fashioning a rescue cage to haul the men off the lifting platform. The process took several hours before they could begin carefully and gently raising one man at a time, though. Obviously the focus was on getting the men up safely, but he described, as word got right around the work sites, how carefully the local community managed to nonchalantly drop in on his heavily pregnant wife for a cuppa just to quietly ensure she had company that afternoon. No one told her about the danger her husband was in currently. They were all concerned that such a shock might trigger a premature labour, but they thought it best to have someone on hand for when good or bad news might have to come to her. On this occasion, it was a good news story for those men involved, but we get a sense such risks were ever-present. Seven men died from electrocution, and four deaths were labelled as miscellaneous, this included a drowning, a death from a fire at the Utah Company barracks, 
one poor man who was buried alive by sand at a worksite, and one cerebral hemorrhage, perhaps the only death that might not have been avoided. Three more workers were killed while servicing plant and equipment. While some senior management in the authority thought memorialising the lost men should be avoided, as it would reflect negatively on the scheme, in February of 1969, at the opening of the Jindabyne pumping station, a small commemorative plaque was unveiled there. By 1981, though, a more substantial and fitting memorial to the 121 snowy men who died constructing the scheme was installed at the authority headquarters in Cooma. At that commemoration, one worker stated that the blending of all the cultures represented there could not have happened in any other environment the way it did on the snowy. Quote, only in this mighty project could this understanding of mateship have developed. Unquote. So there was certainly a continuing pride in both the project, but also in remembering your mates, being part of a positive social experiment, all nationalities working together for the good of the country. Many migrants earned their stripes on the snowy as new Australians, all brothers in the process of nation-building in their new home. In reflecting on the human cost, McHugh recounted one persistent horror story that was often alluded to, suggesting that workers' bodies were entombed in tunnel concrete. But in researching the snowy reports and documentation, there was no evidence that this occurred, and it was more likely that the gruesome myth grew from the talk of the real dangers in concreting tunnels. She thinks the catalyst for the rumour grew from one particularly disturbing incident involving a concrete pour, and it was probably this incident that directly fed into the bodies in the tunnels myth. The records for this accident showed that seven men were working in a shaft at the Island Bend Dam site just before Christmas in 1963. They were working at lining the shaft with concrete, which was being piped in from above. The foreman below knew the signal to start pumping had been given, but after 15 minutes, still no concrete had arrived. He climbed up to check for a blockage, and he used a vibrating tool to loosen any potential debris. Unfortunately, this did loosen the blockage, but after 15 minutes of pumping, by then a massive backlog of concrete had built up, and loosening it caused the pipes to rupture, break loose, and knock the man down into the formwork. An avalanche of concrete fell in after him, and the other men below were also flattened by the equipment breaking loose and falling on them. The supervisor above saw the collapse and stopped the pumping, but the man in the formwork had already been buried up to his hips in concrete, with the damaged pipework pinning him in place there. A rescue effort was launched immediately, and four injured men were brought up, but the man in the concrete was the most difficult to reach, and they knew he had only about two hours before the concrete would set. One man recalled that they tried everything to help, pouring sugar into the mix to try and stop it from setting, as they worked to free him. But with crush injuries from the fallen pipework, he died there, in place, before they could get him out. Two other bodies were also retrieved from the shaft in the eight hours that followed. The inquest revealed that the blockage was caused by a lump of hardened concrete somehow coming in through the liquid being pumped in, and the fresh concrete piled up under pressure behind it. By the time the worker vibrated the blockage out of the way, there was nine tonnes of concrete suddenly released into the shaft. Those who witnessed the accident suggested it was the rush to get the job done before the Christmas break that caused it, 
They were not being careful enough, suggesting they should have shut off the pour and investigated immediately when the concrete failed to flow. Was there a breach in cleaning and clearing procedures that meant the hardened concrete formed where it should not have? But no single person was held accountable, and it was recorded as an unforeseeable accident. Of course, the bodies were recovered, and the men accounted for. But rumours about bodies buried behind the formwork persisted and circulated over the years. Robinson also breaks down the snowy fatalities internationalities represented, and Australians made up 30 of the 121 fatalities. The Italians lost almost as many with 27 deaths, then the Yugoslavs at 11. The Norwegians lost seven men, and we must remember that they were one of the earliest groups to start undertaking large construction in the early days. It's worth noting the Norwegian deaths were disproportionately high, and they were not at this time pushing the men to work at the breakneck speeds later required. So there may have been some disadvantage in selecting their labourers the way they did, from the rural north of Norway, rather than recruiting seasoned construction workers. We spoke about the nationality groups gravitating to particular tasks, and the Italians, and to a lesser extent the Yugoslavs, often undertook the more dangerous concreting and tunnelling work. The Australian death rate, though, was so high because they were often working as plant operators, truck and grader and tornapool drivers, so we know those plant operating fatalities represented the highest percentage overall. Robinson also notes that while the speed demanded by some contractors may have encouraged a less careful work environment, there did also appear to be a rather reckless attitude displayed by some. Robinson notes that the building and construction industry then certainly was a fundamentally less safe industry than it is today. The attitude amongst many workers was that it was inherently dangerous and therefore a certain acceptance of risk was required. Some felt, quote, if you are not tough enough to do the work, you got out of the industry, unquote. In the earlier days especially, there was the idea that workplace safety was the responsibility of the individual workers. The companies consistently reminded them to take care, but the sites didn't really have enough enforceable systematic safeguards and safety management systems in place to address the predictable human behaviour. That wasn't really fair. You might only need one gung-ho bloke among the work group to put them all in danger, no matter how careful the others, what General Motors had called, quote, unsafe players in the plant, unquote. This is where systems and safety procedures should moderate and mitigate risk. Robinson suggests, quote, gung-ho attitudes were sometimes prevalent amongst the largely Anglo-Australian plant operators who were more than prepared to accept the tear-ass mentality around the dam sites, unquote. Haste meant that workers needed to be on their toes at all times, a dangerous thing to expect of humans long term, and the accident figures bear this out. Migrant workers may have taken greater risks than was wise too, but the motivations may have been different. While the Australians who felt the risk too high might walk away from the job, many migrants felt bound to do as a supervisor said, even if they were concerned for their safety. There was a union presence on site, and there were disagreements and even strikes, but the authority and the contractors were usually able to work through the issues and achieve a resolution fairly quickly. As the new contractors came on, their work contract usually stipulated the pay, conditions and output expected, and the labourers signed up agreeing to such. Most of the focus was on capacity to earn even more if outputs were exceeded and the men and their unions were very keen on this arrangement. 
sometimes to the detriment of safety, in the opinion of some. The Australian Workers' Union grew out of the earliest union movements in the shearing sheds of the 1800s, and while 52 unions had representation on the Snowy Scheme, the AWU was the dominant force for most of the construction period. So we should look a little more at the perceptions of the workers and their union reps about the arrangements on the Snowy. But, as always, time has gotten away again. So now, coming to a rather abrupt halt, we really do need to finish up for this episode today, and we'll take it up again in the following. I'll let you know what we'll cover in the next episode in just a moment. First, let me tell you about my podcast recommendation this month. This might be of interest to those listening to the podcast close to its original release date. Hopefully, if you're listening to the archive months and years after I recorded it, this will no longer be important. The featured podcast this month is the currently highly topical CoronaCast. The CoronaCast I'm recommending is the Australian one, produced by the ABC and hosted by Dr Norman Swan, long-time presenter of Radio National's Health Report, and health and science journalist Tegan Taylor. It is focused on the situation in Australia, but is chock full of reliable, evidence-based, high-quality information about COVID-19 and our responses, updated daily as our knowledge and the social situation changes. Along with giving current information on COVID-related issues, Norman and Tegan answer listener questions and review new developments and research. I highly recommend it if you're listening while the pandemic is still current, or for a historical perspective if not, And sadly, we are likely to be dealing with this for a good while yet, until a vaccine might become available. It's comforting to get the quality information and a good understanding about why various policies and procedures are being used or not being used. If you want to be informed with reliable evidence-based information to bat away the swarms of mis- and disinformation being recklessly spread around, this is the podcast for you. As always, I'll put a link to CoronaCast on my webpage. The reference list for this episode can be found at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Once again this month, I used a snippet of music from The Settlers, and I'll provide a link to a related Settlers website if you want to hear more. We talked today about the conditions and arrangements for the labourers on the scheme, and I have more to retell about the safety conditions and attitudes on site, so we'll continue with that theme a little more next time. I want to briefly consider the role of the unions on the Snowy, before turning our minds back again to the life and opportunities available to the men after tools down in the snowy towns and camps. We've spoken before about classes for English, for example, and of the wet messes, drinking and gambling, but there's a little more to say about recreation next time. So we'll continue where we've left off here. Other things to note, we'll be looking at the latter stages of the project, the expertise the authority had been building over the years, and how they used their skills and knowledge and shared them with the world. Also of interest are the thoughts of those who worked there, looking back on their contribution to the scheme, recorded by Siobhan McHugh in the decades that followed. So there's still plenty more to reflect on. Please join me again next time to continue where we left off today. Thanks so much for listening. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll chat to you next time. Cheers. Cheers.